As we turn now to God's Word, I want to share with you a message that I have titled, Faith That Causes the Master to Marvel. We're going to be in Luke chapter 7, so if you have your Bibles with you, and I hope that you do, find your way to Luke chapter 7, and we'll begin looking in verse 1 of Luke chapter 7. We're in a long-term series through the book of Luke, and we have arrived now at Luke chapter 7. I want to share with you... Uh, and a story that I heard, a man slipped and fell one day off of a steep cliff while he was hiking on a mountaintop. Now, luckily, he was, able to hold a, he was able to get a hold of a branch as he was sliding on his way down. But as he was there hanging on that branch, he looked down and he could see that it was a long distance to those rocky valleys below. And then as he looked up, he saw that the cliff was too steep, that there was no way that he would climb up that cliff on his own. There was no way that he was going to make it back to the top by his own effort. So in his desperation, in this time of panic, he yelled out saying, Help! Help! Is there anybody up there? Help! Now to his surprise, a big booming voice came down and said, I am here. And I will save you if you believe in me. Now, this man was exasperated. He had no other option. And so he yelled, I believe, I believe, save me. Well, the voice came back a second time and said, If you believe me, let go of that branch and I will catch you. Well, the man looked down one more time at those rocky that rocky bottom of that valley, and he looked one more time at that distance that was above, and then he, he shouted, Is there anybody else up there? <laughs> and I think if many of us were in the same predicament, we'd probably have the same sort of response. If we're going to be rescued, then we want to rescue by someone that we can see. We want to rescue by someone that we can grab a hold of. We want to be rescued by someone who comes directly to us and interacts with us we want to be rescued by someone that we can physically cling to and anyone who would let go in a moment like that without being able to see the rescuer in person would have to have some sort of remarkable faith in the one who was offering that rescue now the passage that's before us today In this passage, we encounter a man who has a predicament in his life. No, he wasn't stuck on a mountainside, but he did have someone that he loved. This was a servant of his who was sick, sick and to the point of death. This was a servant who's on his deathbed. And this man learned that Jesus could help with this predicament. He learned through the things that Jesus had been doing all around the Galilean countryside as he had healed so many individuals as he had shown himself to have authority over even the fish in the sea, as you'll recall from what we had read about in Peter's calling to be a disciple. And so this man had certainly heard a little bit of the buzz about Jesus healing, about Jesus driving out demons, about Jesus making a difference that no one else could make. And so in this moment, as he realized that there's someone that can do something that he needs, there's someone that can care for this servant that he loves, that he cannot care for on his own, he decides to send a delegation to Jesus in order that they might implore him to come and make the difference. They might implore him to come and be this rescuer in his time of need. 
And that's the ideal for all of us when we want a rescuer. We all want someone who will come in person. But as Jesus came close, this man began to consider something about himself. He began to consider his own unworthiness to have the master present in his own home, under his own roof. And so in this moment, this man came to realize that the one who had power over sickness and disease and nature didn't need to appear directly in front of him, did not need to appear in person, did not need to appear where he could touch him physically in order to do his saving work. And so this man learned what Jesus could do. He learned that Jesus was moving toward him. And in that moment, he responded with a great faith. He decided in that moment that Jesus had come far enough to deserve his trust. And so he responded with words of faith. He responded by simply telling Jesus, you say the word and my servant will be healed. You see, this man essentially has said, you come far enough for me, Jesus. Don't trouble yourself anymore. You've done what's needed. I've learned what you can do. I've learned that you want to make the difference for me. And now I'm going to trust in what you can do. And we'll see in a moment that when Jesus hears these words from this man, he marveled at him. That is, Jesus was amazed at what this man was saying. Why? Well, because this man's great faith was on display in this moment. This man had a marvelous faith. And a marvelous faith says, Jesus, you've come far enough for me, and I will trust in you. Now, we're in this midst of a, a long-term study through the Gospel of Luke. We're, we're up close to 30 messages through Luke, so I apologize for the breakneck speed that we're traveling through this book, but uh, bear with us. We will continue on our uncharted territories through this book. And we've made it to Luke chapter 7. And I've told you from the beginning that ultimately Luke, as an author, has this tendency to draw out individuals who are outcasts. That's the reason we titled this series, Outcast, because Luke is ultimately a gospel for the rejected. And over and over again, we see that Luke draws our attention to how Jesus deals with individuals who you wouldn't expect him to deal with. He deals with individuals who've gotten it all wrong. He deals with individuals who are not part of God's chosen people. And that's the guy that we're looking at here today, this Roman centurion, that we'll see in the passage here in just a moment, is another example of Jesus reaching to the outcasts. We've got a man who is ultimately not a part of God's chosen people. And Luke's going to draw our attention to this man and ultimately how Jesus said that this man had a sort of faith that nobody else had, even among God's chosen people in Israel. And so today I want to begin with the most important question for each and every one of you. And that question is this. Has Jesus come far enough for you to trust Him? Has Jesus come far enough for you to trust Him? In light of what He's done, in light of His desire for you, in light of the fact that He has moved in your direction, are you now living with a faith that says, Jesus, you've come far enough for me? And it's a question that we all need to consider. It's a question that has relevancy for every area of our lives. It's a question that can ultimately bring peace to all of our anxieties. It's, it's a question that can ultimately bring our weary lives and the complications that we face to this conclusion, which gives us a hope for all of eternity. 
And so the question that I want you to keep in your mind as we look through this passage today in this example of a man with a marvelous sort of faith, the question I want you to have in mind is, has Jesus come far enough for me to trust him? Join me now in Luke chapter 7. If you're able, I'd ask that you stand as we honor the reading of God's word here. Luke 7, verse 1. When he, that is Jesus, had completed all of his discourse in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. And the centurion's slave, who was highly regarded by him, was sick and about to die. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. When they came to Jesus... They earnestly implored him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation. And it was he who built us our synagogue. Now Jesus started on his way with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him and turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. You may be seated. So there you have it. This is marvelous faith on display from an unlikely outcast. And Luke gives us just a very brief setting to this episode that happens here today. This is after Jesus' discourse. What discourse is he talking about? It's that sermon on the plain that we've been looking at for the last few weeks. Jesus had first called his disciples. He gave them this discipleship 101 as we talked about over these previous weeks, and kind of got them in this brief introduction to, here's what it means to be a disciple. Here are the essentials you need to know as those whom I have freshly called to be in this preparation phase to carry on my ministry once I am gone. After that discourse, Luke records, now that, that Jesus has gone back to Capernaum. Capernaum is ultimately what was Jesus' Galilean home base for his time of ministry here on earth. As he, as he ministered to that northern area of Galilee within the nation of Israel, Jesus would often spend his time in this town of Capernaum, the city of Capernaum. This city was the place where Jesus had called Matthew. This is the place where Jesus had healed the man who was paralyzed. This is a place that's already been on our radar in our study through the book of Luke. And this was a very important place in Jesus' ministry. But with that very brief context, Jesus then ultimately shifts our focus. Luke really shifts our focus in that 
he doesn't draw as much attention to what Jesus is doing in the verses that we've read today. Now, Jesus is ultimately the catalyst, and none of what we read about today could happen without his involvement. But, but another individual receives the spotlight, and it is this one who is a centurion. Now, a centurion was a commander in the Roman army. He's not a Jew. He's a member of the nation of Rome. He's an officer of the Roman army. This man would have been a commander of roughly about 100 men. That's where the cent part of the centurion comes from. He was ruling over about 100 individuals. And so this man would have had some pretty considerable status in the nation of Rome because of his authority over individuals in the military. But he also would have had a good bit of wealth. And he was a commander for an army that was known for its brutal force. The Roman army was known for being very brutal and taking over certain areas and bringing them into what would become this vast empire. But there was something different about this centurion. Yes, he was part of a brutal army, but he was not a brutal man. As a matter of fact, he was a man who was full of love for others. How do we know that? Well, Luke shows us that he loved his slave. Luke chapter 7 verse 2 says that this man's slave was highly regarded by him. Now, Roman soldiers, and specifically Roman officials in the Roman army, those who were commanders, did not typically value their slaves. Much less would they highly value them, as Luke records here. And yet, this man had an exceptional love for all people. We see this also in the way that he interacted with the nation that he was charged with caring for. He loved his subjects. The Jews that came to Jesus on this centurion's behalf ultimately testify to his love for them. In verses 4 and 5, they say, He is worthy for you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation, and it was he who built us our synagogue. This man loved the nation of Israel. He loved those that his job called for him to protect, even though they didn't share the same heritage. In fact, many of the Jews hated the Romans. They knew that God had promised them this land. They hated that there was a foreign uh, power that was occupying what God had rightfully declared was theirs. But this didn't phase this centurion's love for these people. He loved them so much that he gave generously to support their pursuit of God. He gave so that they could build a synagogue. And the centurion, he put a high value on every life. Every life. Not just those that he knew. Not, not just those who were a part of his family. Not, not just those who shared the same ethnicity as him. He cared for every life. And brothers and sisters, so must we. We must care for every life. We must see value in every human life. Because God sees value in every human life. Every one of our members of this race of mankind shares in the image of God, which he has placed within us for, since the very dawn of creation. And because God's image is in individuals, he has a great love for them, a great desire for them to ultimately prosper. This is the desire that we see fleshed out through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we must love as God loves. We must love. Every individual of the human race. 
And I want to ask you, do you love individuals of all walks of life? Do you love every individual that bears the image of God? Do you love those who bear His image even from their mother's womb? Do you love those who come from other nations, even if their immigration status may be undocumented or if their religion may be violent? Do you love those individuals? Are you willing to give of yourself and of your resources to enable them to come to the true and the living God? Well, this man, he was. This was a passion for him. And that, my friends, is a reflection of the heart of our God. That is a reflection of his image placed within us. And with this loving heart, the centurion commits himself to caring for his slave. We learn in verse 2 that this slave is sick and about to die. This slave is on his deathbed. And Matthew records additional details about this slave in chapter 8 of his gospel account. That's where we learn that this slave is paralyzed and fearfully tormented. And so out of a great love, this centurion is trying to help his slave find life. And even in this, there's an evangelistic call for each one of us who is here today. We should be challenged by what this man is doing. Whose life are you trying to save, brothers and sisters? Who are you trying to help find the only one who can truly save? When the centurion highly regarded his slave, he sought Jesus to save his life. And we ought to be doing the same thing for those around us who need his salvation. And Luke includes this account from Jesus' ministry for a reason. Only in this one encounter with Jesus do we read in the entire Bible about someone who caused Jesus to marvel. Someone who caused Jesus to be amazed in a positive sort of way. Now there were others that Jesus marveled at because of their unbelief. But here, and only here, only in this one account with this one centurion from another nation is Jesus found marveling, being amazed at the great faith of someone else. And there's a lesson for each one of us to learn from this man. Because as we see faith that causes the master to marvel on display, you and I ought to be asking ourselves, how can I live with a faith like this man? How can I live with a faith that ultimately responds in the way that Jesus is going to be honored and excited about the faith that is within me. And so in the remainder of our time today, I want to share with you from God's Word how you can follow the pathway to a marvelous faith. How can you live with a marvelous faith? Well, let's look at the five steps that this man took and see how God called for each one of us to take these same steps in relationship to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So these are going to be five steps to a marvelous faith. The first one is this. Appreciate Christ's ability. Appreciate Christ's ability. In verse 2, we read a simple phrase that kicks this whole episode off. It's there at the beginning of verse 3 where Luke records, when he, that is the centurion, heard about Jesus... He sent some Jewish elders asking him to come. This all starts with a moment of knowledge for the centurion. And ultimately, Luke doesn't record what this man comes to learn about Jesus. But there's something 
that he learns about him that helps him to understand that Jesus can address his need. And likely he's heard about all the things that Jesus is doing in the Galilean countryside in making such a wonderful difference in the lives of individuals. The things we've already talked about. Healing the sick. Exercising the demons. Showing power and authority over even the wind and the waves. Jesus is showing himself in these moments to be something so far beyond what you might expect from any other individual. And this man somehow had come to an appreciation of what Christ could do. And he had to do that. He had to come to an appreciation of what Jesus could do before he would ultimately call out to him as one that he could exercise this marvelous faith in. And so there's really an unsung hero in this passage. Luke doesn't call out who it was. But ultimately, we we read that this centurion heard about Jesus. For him to hear about Jesus, somebody had to tell him about Jesus. Somebody had to be involved in sharing the good news of what Jesus was doing. Otherwise, there's no chance for this man to come to this great faith in who Jesus is. And friends, there are unsung heroes all around us. But I hope that there are more and more unsung heroes that are rising up out of this flock. Those who would go and would share this hopeful news that a Savior has come. One who can deal with your greatest dilemmas is here. And I hope, my friends, that we are all going out of this place and gossiping the gospel. I mean, let's share the good news with those around us. Let's tell of what Christ has done. This is a call for us to share the gospel. This is a call for us to evangelize. And friends, I just want to ask, have you heard of what Jesus can do? Ultimately, do you appreciate his ability? Because I want to tell you that he is a marvelous Savior. He is one who can deal with your life's greatest dilemmas. He is the one who can provide a pathway for you to be restored to God. He is one who has provided a way for you to enjoy eternity with the God that you have sinned against. And Jesus does amazing things. And I hope, my friends, that you are appreciating his ability because that's the first step to a marvelous faith. The second is this. Seek Christ's support. Seek Christ's support. Once the centurion came to appreciate Jesus' ability, he then moves along to seek his support. He didn't just learn about what Jesus could do and say, well, that's pretty cool. He, he, he learned and he sought Jesus. He sent a delegation of Jewish elders to ask for his saving work in the life of the slave that he loved. And surely these Jews who were representing this centurion who sent them, when we find them in verse 4, are earnestly imploring Jesus to come and intervene because he is earnestly imploring Jesus to come and intervene. They beg Jesus because they know the desperation and the desire of their friend to have the healer come and make a difference. And I believe we live, my friends, in a society that appreciates Christ's ability but that is hesitant to seek his support. There are many people around us who believe certain things about Jesus. They may believe that he carried out 
miraculous deeds. They may believe that he's still capable of carrying out miracles. They may believe that he was a great moral teacher. But there is a reluctance, there is a hesitance that is growing more and more in our society where individuals are hesitant to seek what he can do specifically for them. And they like to talk about good things that Jesus can do, but not trust in him, not pursue him, not seek him with all of their hearts and lives. Instead, we're so wrapped up in our own self-sufficiency. Boy, that power outage was a good reminder of, to us of, of our self-sufficiency, was it not? And I think sometimes the technology and all the things that we've got at our fingertips and the information we can pull up at just the drop of a hat causes us to lean on ourselves instead of seeking what Christ can do. And so I want to urge you, my friends, to seek the Savior because your self-sufficiency will never be enough, my friend. That's what this centurion realized. And ultimately, he came to a moment of pursuit in his life. He decides that in this moment, he's going to seek after one who can do what he cannot do on his own. And that's why he asks for Jesus to come. And the centurion makes a pretty bold request. He doesn't say, uh, um, Jesus, uh, you know, if you have time, maybe you could do a little bit of something for this guy. No, through his delegation of Jewish elders, the centurion asked Jesus to come and to save. That's a bold request, my friends. Come, Lord Jesus, and save. That's a request of faith. That's a step toward a marvelous faith. And I want to ask you, have you made that request? Have you called out to Christ to say, come and save in my life, Lord Jesus? Have you recognized your own insufficiency and cried out for Him to make the difference? Have you sought Christ's support? What do you think He'll do? Do you think he'll make the difference? Well, let's look at the example before us to see where Christ's heart is. You see, everywhere that Jesus went, crowds would follow him. As a matter of fact, later in verse 10, we see that the crowds were following Jesus. He turns and speaks to them in the passage that we've already read. And at this point, the crowds have already heard this plea on behalf of a centurion. They've heard this plea on behalf of a wealthy man. And so they're questioning in their minds at this moment, will Jesus respond? Is Jesus going to make the difference in the life of someone who's not part of what they know to be God's chosen people at this point? Is Jesus going to respond in the life of an individual who is wealthy? You remember back in the sermon that we just looked at over these last few weeks that Jesus said, blessed are the poor. What's Jesus going to do with this guy who's coming now? Will Jesus minister to this man? And Jesus did indeed minister to this man, but before that could happen, he had to seek Christ's support. So that's the second step to a marvelous faith. Seek Christ's support. The third one is this. Be moved by Christ's movement be moved by christ's movement in verse 6 we read that jesus begins to respond that's where we read now jesus started on his way with them he started on his way with the delegation to meet the need jesus is moving to meet the need of this man's slave jesus is moving in response to the request of this centurion he's moving 
to answer this man's bold request, which has been issued to the master. And something changes for this centurion. Now, surely some of his friends must have run ahead of the crowds because what we see next is that in verse 6, when Jesus was not far from the centurion's house, the centurion stops Jesus in his tracks. He sends out his friends to tell Jesus, Lord, do not trouble yourself further. Do not come under my roof. So this man had originally sent this delegation asking Jesus to come and to heal, but now he sees that this one whose ability he appreciates is now moving toward him. And in that moment, he's overwhelmed by the fact that Christ would move in his direction. Christ would move to meet his request. And so he decides in this moment not to trouble Jesus any further with his movement. He essentially says, Jesus, you've moved far enough for me. And this man had now arrived at what would be known as a moment of provision. In this parallel account in Matthew chapter 8, we read that Jesus said, I will come and heal this servant. Jesus has expressed that he is coming to do this very thing. He's expressed that his desire is to bring healing. His desire is to answer this request. His desire is to make this prayer into a reality for this man. And so Jesus has expressed that he's going to do that very thing. And he's now moving in that direction. And surely before this, this centurion probably had some doubts in his mind. Why would Jesus care about me? I'm not a Jew. I don't know him. My servant doesn't know him. We're just nobodies to him. And so he probably thought, I doubt if he would ever take time out of his busy schedule to, to, to come to my house in the midst of his ministry. But in this moment, my friends, we see something very important about Jesus. Jesus cares, my friends. Jesus is never too busy for you. Jesus is deeply interested in your life, in your situation, in your need for something greater. He has time in his busy schedule for you. He has a loving response for you. Even with all of his power and all of his authority and all the things that are at his fingertips, all the things that he is charged with, Jesus is capable of dealing with you, my friends. He is capable of bringing peace to you, healing to you, salvation to you. And friends, our God cares. Our God is sensitive to our needs. And I don't care who you are, you can put this in the bank. Jesus is not too busy for you. I don't care what you've done. Jesus is willing to make the difference for you. And for the centurion here in Luke chapter 7, the fact that Jesus was coming for him, the fact that Jesus had shown and expressed that he desired to make a difference in the situation, that was enough for him. When he learned that Jesus was moving for him, he knew that this was enough. When he learned that the one who could control the wind and the waves, the one who could heal the paralyzed and raise the dead was headed for him, he didn't get selfish. He didn't say, just wait until he gets here, and then we'll see if he really cares. And friends, I want you to know, Jesus has moved for you. Jesus left heaven's glories to be robed in flesh and to face the torture that you and I deserve so that you could be restored to God. He stood in your place, the righteous one for the unrighteous. 
He has moved on your behalf so that you could be forgiven, so that you could have a clean slate before God. He lived a sinless life you couldn't live so that you could be credited with his righteousness. And ultimately, Jesus has been raised from the dead as a hope and a promise that one day you can do the same if your faith is in him. You see, my friends, Jesus has moved in a mighty way for you. You can take that to the bank. And the question I want to ask all of you is this. Is the fact that Jesus has moved for you enough? Do you somehow think in your mind that he needs to come further to prove himself to you? Does he need to trouble himself further for you? A sense of entitlement that's so common in our era says, Come on, Jesus. Come to me. Make something that I can see. Make something physical, tangible that I can see. Something that I can hold. Instead of just expressing a great faith that says Jesus has moved and so I will trust him. And so many of us want to say, I am worthy, Jesus. You come to me and show yourself to me. But this man didn't see himself as worthy. That's what we'll see next. The third step to a marvelous faith was to be moved by Christ's movement. The fourth is this. Submit to Christ's superiority. Submit to Christ's superiority. When Jesus takes time out of his busy ministry and moves toward this centurion, this centurion ultimately comes to a moment of humility in his life as he considers that the worker of unfathomable miracles is coming his way. The centurion comes to realize that he's not worthy. He is not worthy for Jesus to come to him. He's not worthy for Jesus to be under his roof. And here in this moment, this man becomes an exemplification of what Jesus has just preached about in his sermon on the plain. Here's a wealthy centurion. So wealthy he could build a synagogue for his fellow citizens. But he is poor in spirit. His friends had come and they had told Jesus that he's worthy for you to do this sort of thing. But he didn't care what his friends had said because in spite of how worthy they might think he is, he knew the inside. He knew what was within. He knew that he was unworthy. And that's why we read in verse 7 that this is the reason he didn't go to Jesus himself to start with. He didn't consider himself worthy. So he sent this delegation of Jews. And he tells Jesus that he's not worthy in verse 6. There he says, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. You see, it didn't matter how worthy other people thought this guy was. I mean, if he was weighing himself on the scale that so many of us tend to weigh ourselves on, Look, the Jews think he's a pretty worthy guy, right? And that's what we tend to think, right? You know, if I'm doing a little bit better than everybody else who's on the same plane that I am, then God's going to see me, right? God's going to see me sticking above the rest of the plane. God's going to see me rising above what my neighbors are doing. God's going to honor that. But this man knew the inside story. He had the inside scoop. He knew that he was not worthy. And the same is true for all of us. We are not worthy of a Savior who could restore us to God. But this, my friends, is where we find the hope of the gospel. Jesus has come to save those who are not worthy for him 
to do so. And friend, I want you to know that you are not worthy. But God is gracious. God is merciful. God is loving. God is not desiring that any should perish. But he yearns that all would come to everlasting life. And so he has granted us his grace. The goodness that we do not deserve. He has bestowed upon us in granting to us the availability of a Savior. Who would grant for us eternal life. Salvation. And in light of God's grace moving toward him in Christ. This centurion submits himself to Christ's superiority. What we read in verse 6 is that ultimately this man addresses Jesus as Lord. That's a, that's a title of respect. That's a title expressing his superiority. That is a title which recognizes that he has the authority. And the centurion is ultimately saving, saying here, because you've moved toward me, because you've shown grace to me, because you offered to save me, I will yield myself to you and your superiority. And friend, I just want to ask you, is Jesus your Lord? Is he the master of your life? Is he the authority? Do you recognize his superiority? Do you yield yourself to his control? Do you say, Lord Jesus, here I am, reporting for duty. Direct me where to go. Have control of my life. Is that your heart? Is that your desire? That's ultimately what we see as this fourth step to a marvelous faith. Submit to Christ's superiority. Here's the fifth and final step to a marvelous faith. Welcome Christ's word. Welcome Christ's word. Finally, this man arrives at this moment of faith. What does he do? He simply trusts the word of Jesus. Jesus has come far enough for this man. He doesn't need him to come any further. How do we know? Because the centurion says in verse 7, just say the word, just say the word, and my servant will be healed. This man welcomes Christ's word. His word was sufficient. Knowing of Jesus' ability and of Jesus' compassion and of Jesus' movement toward him, this man had a great faith that said, Jesus, you just say it, and it'll be done. And that's a marvelous faith, my friends. That's a faith that says, I believe you will accomplish what you said you will accomplish. I believe you can accomplish that right now. I believe that you've already done all that needs to be done. I simply trust in you. And Jesus marvels at that sort of faith. And I can't help but wonder, if Jesus were here on the earth now, if Jesus were in this place, do you think he would marvel at the faith of any one of us? Do, do you think our trust in him would be so great that, that any of us would be called out as examples for Jesus to say, look at this individual and his marvelous faith? And I don't know about you, but I don't think I'd be there. But here we've got an example of one who presses us on to a greater goal. We've got an example of one who shows Jesus' word is enough to make the difference. And this is one who is outside of the nation of Israel. This is one who is outside of the people of God. 
It makes me wonder, are there individuals who are outside of the church who are believing more about what Christ can do than those who are in the church? Because here in this moment, this man's faith exceeded the faith of anyone Jesus had encountered from among God's people. You see, they were all kind of caught up in the routine. They had all heard the blessings, the promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And they were clinging to these promises. They were all caught up in the ritual of the sacrificial system and observing certain festivals and certain Sabbaths and avoiding certain foods. And caught up in that ritual of doing the things that they were doing, they assumed that they were on the right path. They assumed that they had taken care of enough things on their own. And friends, don't get there in the church. Don't get there to where you're checking off the list that says, oh man, well I've been to church on Sunday, week's taken care of. Don't get there where you say, oh well, you know, I was involved, I volunteered for a little while, helped out in the community, helped to feed others. Checklist complete. Because ultimately, it's easy for us to get caught up in the ritual of things just like those in Israel here apparently were doing and to miss out on the fact that Jesus makes all the difference. It's easy for us to miss out on the fact that it's ultimately by grace through faith that He has saved us. And it is His promises that shall prevail for all of eternity. Jesus says, Not even in Israel have I found such great faith here here this roman centurion this outsider this outcast more so than any of the jewish elders more so than any of the disciples even this roman centurion understood more than any of them what it means to call jesus lord is to trust the authority of his word if jesus could simply say the word then anything that he could say would be accomplished That is a great faith, my friends, in the ability of Jesus. That's the faith that Christ calls us to. That's what faith is all about. Believing in God's Word, that He will do what He has said. And friends, I want to ask you, do you you believe in God's Word? Because you see, Jesus left heaven's glories to come and reveal God's heart to you. Jesus has revealed it ultimately He is for you. God is for you. He is not against you. Do you believe His Word? Do you believe when ultimately Jesus says that He is the way, the truth, and the life? Do you believe that life is only found in Him? That is the Word of our God. It's trusting in that Word where your heart and your life is in these moments. And ultimately, I want to ask you, have you written... Anyone out of the kingdom? I mean, this is a centurion. He's not part of God's people. Is there anyone you think is beyond His grace? I want you to know that Jesus can write that person in. Have you written yourself out of His grace? Have you said, because of my background, because of my junk, because of my history, His grace would not be sufficient for me? I I want you to know, friend, His grace is more than sufficient. His grace is all that we need. His grace makes all the difference. And Jesus can write you in. I don't care how much you've written yourself off. In the end, we find here with the centurion that simple faith accompanied to the power of Jesus' word can do some pretty amazing things. Marvelous things. Ultimately, when, when these servants, these, these individuals who've gone as a delegation 
of the centurion return back home, they find that this slave is healed. And in Matthew's account of this same thing, in Matthew chapter 8, we read, Jesus said, go, and it shall be done for you as you have believed. While Luke's account here in verse 7 reveals that this delegation of Jews found the servant in good health upon their return, Matthew gives us this extra insight that the servant was healed at that very moment when Jesus spoke the word. And here, my friends, we see that the Lord Jesus heals. He has an authority which can grant life. And to a certain degree, my friends, you should know that this episode in the life of this centurion was ultimately an advertisement of a greater healing that Jesus has promised to carry out one day. Because one day soon, my friends, Jesus will eradicate every disease. One day soon, my friends, Jesus will cure every sickness. One day soon, my friends, Jesus will remove every pain. One day soon, my friends, Jesus will use his authority to bless all of those who place their trust in him. And he desires to do so. Faith, my friends, says that Jesus has come far enough for me. I will trust in him. Is that the faith of your heart? Is that the hope of your eternity? Have, have you ultimately said that because Jesus has moved, I will place my trust in Him? Because Jesus has shown Himself to have great abilities and great authority and to have great compassion. Because Jesus has gone to the uttermost. Because Jesus has gone to the cross. Because Jesus has emptied the tomb to show me of His love. That He's come far enough for me. And I am now ready to trust in Him with all that I have for all of eternity. Is that your heart, my friends? Well, my friends, I want to share with you the good news of the gospel that Christ is ready to save. And He does save each and every individual who has that confidence in Him. This is His heart. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank You for the hope of this good news that Jesus has moved far enough for us Jesus has done everything that needs to be done we don't need to cross off our checklist we simply need to trust what you've said you will do Lord Jesus you will accomplish Father there may be those who gather here in these moments who need to take hold of these truths There may be individuals here, Lord, who've been busy working on the checklist, been busy looking around at their neighbors, been too concerned with what everybody else thinks about how worthy they are and not considering their unworthiness in your sight. Father, if there are those individuals here, and I know that there certainly are, that you, O Lord, would draw them by the power of your grace to say it's not your goodness, it's what I've done. It's not your ability. It is my word. And Father, may we cling to the hope that only you can provide in the righteous one who has stood in our place. And I just want to say for a moment, folks, for those of you who are gathered here, if if that is a prayer of your heart, that you would desire to ultimately entrust your heart and your life to King Jesus, 
it's not a matter of works that we do. There's no special formula. It's a matter of trust. But often we express that trust through a very simple sort of prayer. And so if you've never entrusted your heart and your life to Jesus, I'd ask you just to take a moment to consider your heart. Is that a decision that you're ready to make now? If it is, I want to ask you just to pray along with me a very simple sort of prayer. It's not, it's not a magical formula. It's not something you've got to say exactly right. It's ultimately an expression of the heart. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But if you desire to be saved, my friends, if you desire to place your trust in him, would you pray with me a little prayer like this? It just says, Lord Jesus, I realize that I'm a sinner. I realize that I cannot earn my own salvation. I realize I cannot make my own way back to you. And I want to be forgiven of my sins. I want to be saved. I want to be restored to you. So save me, Lord Jesus. Make me new. Give me a new priority. Give me new purposes. Give me new life. I believe that your son has made the difference. I believe that Jesus died for me. I believe that Jesus is raised from the dead. I believe that in him, your word says that I too can have this hope. And so save me, Jesus. I turn away from my sins and I trust in you. If that is a prayer of your heart, then friends, I want to I just tell you, there is good news in the gospel that Jesus makes this difference. So, Father, you work in the hearts and lives of your people and bring decisions, O oh Lord, that would bring glory to our dear Savior, for he deserves it all. He's the only one who's truly worthy among all of mankind. So may we rejoice in your provisions through him, and may we, O oh Lord, step into marvelous faith. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.